Hello and welcome to Work Like a Woman podcast. I'm sitting here with Mary Portas. And I'm actually lying down because I've been <laughs> on the road non-stop in my high heels. And it's quite a special one today. Uh, we've, we've decided to do a live recording from your show Work Like a Woman where you were interviewed with the beautiful and brilliant Miranda Sawyer. It was at Shaw Theatre in London. It was kind of the, the penultimate one to the yeah. end of my tour. So hope you enjoy it. It was a great night. It was a great tour. I want to do more. So here is Miranda Sawyer in conversation at the Shaw Theatre with Mary Portas. Thank you. Thank you. You've got the cameras going in the front row there, Miranda. <laughs> she said, walk on like it's your encore. I did, yeah. I did say that. <laughs> Always. Um, so, Mary, some of people will have uh, read this fabulous book and some won't have read it. So what I'm going to ask you to do at the very beginning is imagine we're in um, an elevator and we're going to make a film of your book and you have to pitch it to me. What is your elevator pitch for Work Like a Woman? OK, um, for too many years we've worked to a culture that's been built by men for men in business and alpha culture predominantly. Few women are getting to the top in business, few women are in positions of power. We make up 50% of the workforce and relatively we're about 10% in positions of power. That needs to change. We need to empower women and we want to work in a different way. We want to work in a kinder way. We want to work in a collaborative way. We want to work like a woman. Nice. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to come back to what is in the book, but I, I kind of always feel like your life is so extraordinary that we should kind of go through that first, really. You were brought up in Watford, very close family with Irish parents. I was wondering what you feel that you, if, if you were to say to somebody, this is what I have in common with my mum and this is what I have in common with my dad what do you feel that you took from your parents oh both very strong individuals my mother was the carer in the home and the backbone of the family fiery redhead so maybe a bit of that um po loved poetry played the violin um uh, taught us was very emotionally fantastic and understood the world my father was driven I mean, he, he came over from Ireland and he couldn't drive and he told his first job, I can drive, and just got in the car and off he went. <laughs> so um, there's a bit okay. of mess in me too. So driven, hardworking, and this mix was just very powerful. So I was very lucky. And you had, so you had brothers and you had a sister. Three brothers and, and a sister, yeah. Uh, and when you were growing up, when I read your book, it seemed to me that you were kind of... Uh, if we speak in uh, kind of gender stereotypes, you were kind of a bit of both. So you, were, you had a f female quality, but you were also quite feisty and out with your brothers as well. Yes. Would you say that was accurate? Yes. Yeah. I was a tomboy. You know, I remember my elder brother, he was very academic, very studious, and, and, and my mother just thought the sun shone out of this. You know, he was everything that was fabulous. And he was, you know. And then my sister was academic and quiet, and then there was Joe who was gentle and arty, and then there was me. And I remember thinking, I'm not the firstborn, I'm not the youngest, I'm not the first daughter. And so I just made up with it with a huge amount of energy. Yeah, and in your book, I remember you saying that you were the one who woke up really early in the morning yes. and you were kind of ready. So you, it's yes. like you had a, an extra energy, do you think? I did. I mean, latterly, I've had a few people say to me, do you think you've got ADHD? I don't know, actually. I don't think I have. I and mean, I, don't, I don't know, but I am 
I have huge amounts of energy, and that morning to me is so intense and wonderful. So 6 a.m., I used to have a little pair of shorts at the bottom of my bed, and that was it. I just put them on, and, you know, I'd just go off, and I'd go out in the garden, I'd go out with the dog, and then I'd wait for everybody to get up, but I'd already started the day a good hour before yeah. most people. And your mum died, I mean, incredibly tragically and suddenly when you were uh, 16. Mm. And... The family, I mean, when, I read, when I've read your book, it felt like a pot that was just smashed on the floor. It was impossible to kind of uh, put it back together again. Mm. Uh, you write about grief incredibly beautifully in that book, and you say it's, it's an emotion that just comes at you when you're not expecting it. It's like you're dropping down. Mm. When you think back to that time, how do you feel about it? now i mean do you feel kind of sorry for yourself or how does it feel well that's true i did i didn't think i did and I, what was um it was the 70s so it was such a shock because it was this this mad sort of heartwarming family <clears throat> and um my mother just you know suddenly she had flu and she went to bed my mother never went to bed you know there's never i can't even remember her being ill and it was the summer, and coming, I remember coming home for the summer holidays, and my brother saying, my mum is not well. Anyway, cut a long story short, she died two weeks later of meningitis, or actually had become encephalitis. And it was like a light had gone out, a, a complete and utter light. Um, but I don't remember, and this was the late 70s, anybody counselling us. And my father went into deep grief, and, and he would come home from work and he would just cry and he'd go and play all their old Irish music, which would just make me fearful and the pain was deeper than, than ever you could imagine. So I would be hiding Lawrence so that she, he didn't see my father crying and it just was an awful, awful, awful time. I can't even put it into words. But I remember thinking, well, I'm 16, I should, I should be able to deal with this. And so I suppressed it. And Funnily enough, when I went to do Desert Island Discs, I was lucky enough to do, and I remember the morning going off to do the recording, and I looked at my two children, this is before Horatio was born, and they were the same age, there was Milo at 16, and there was Verity at 14, which would have been my, me and my brother, and I, it hit me that the, these two children of mine who so desperately still needed me were standing there like these young children and I was that age. Yeah. And I, when I actually did that great interview with, with Kirsty, she brought a lot of that out. And when I finished doing the, 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 the recording, I remember ringing Melanie and, and I couldn't speak. I hadn't dealt with it at all. And she said, what happened? Was Kirsty just a bit of a cow? I said, no, she was, she was <laughs> actually really fantastic. Nice. She's actually really nice. But it brought it all forward. And I started to grieve for the child that I was. Yeah, which is an entirely yeah. reasonable thing to do. And your dad, I mean, the other kind of, it's not interesting, but the kind of element of that is that your dad was grieving, but equally you'd had quite um, traditional gender roles in your house. So it became like it was your role to take over your mother's role. Is that right? Yes, and it was by default because my sister had left to, to nurse train. My eldest brother was at university and Joe, my third brother, was gone into hairdressing, so he was working every day. So I happened to be the next one in line, and so I'd come home and have to do the dinner, you know, mm. and make the tea, and Lawrence and I between us, because my father couldn't cook, never did anything like that, and he worked, he brought home the money, and that was it, you know, it was t typical, you know, we're talking 70s. So I just picked that up and doing the washing, I didn't even know how often you did the washing, or when you changed the beds, or, and you just get on. But it's interesting, like if you take one step removed from that, 
that what is interesting really is you realise that your dad is actually, because of these gender, uh, fixed gender roles, completely ill-equipped to look after himself. He couldn't look after himself no, he because couldn't. he had not learned how to do that. No, he had absolutely no idea whatsoever. And I, and I accepted that. You, you accepted that. That, of course, you saw that because I never saw my father cook. I never saw him put the washing on. Um, and so, therefore, when, when that happened, I, I took that responsibility. I thought, of course, this is my role. This is what I need to do. And, I, you know, people often say to me, oh, you love independent shops, but... I remember I used to get the school bus from Rickmansworth, some of my school friends are here tonight, and it used to stop off in, in, in Watford. And by the time we'd got from Rickmansworth to Watford, the butchers would just about be closing because they always close about 4.30. And they used to leave out for me and say, look, your mum used to buy this on a Wednesday, Mary, you know. Yeah. And the fruit and veg guy, I remember finding a little box of fruit and veg and he'd put how to steam some of the vegetables down for me. So, so lovely. <clears throat> this real sense of community and kindness and love that were probably looking at this kind of bedraggled kid coming in <laughs> and trying to run a family. But in, in a way, they were sort of my... They saved me. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, this might seem a really weird question, but I've asked it of uh, people who've been in your situation before. There is, if your parents die uh, younger than one might expect, and your dad died quite soon after your mum, really, um, is there a sense of liberation from, from uh, expectations and a sense of that you can take control of your life? No. I don't think my parents expected anything from me. There was a, my mother was fierce on academic work. So she was, um, that was, if you weren't working hard at school, you know, you felt it. And I remember my sister coming home once and saying, Mummy, I saw the register and I was number two in the class. And my mother said, and who was number one? Yeah. Like, so there was that, that real, and there was that sort of competitiveness. But I don't think they had an expectation of me. I didn't feel freed from it. I didn't. No, I, I'd like to say that I did. I didn't have that put on me. And don't, don't forget, this was a working class Irish family. You know, when I decided, you know, that I wanted to go to drama school, you know, the, the nun said, drama, but don't you do enough drama yourself, Mary? You <laughs> You're not dramatic do, enough. Do you need any more of that in your life? And so it, it wasn't anybody sort of guiding and these aspirations. You just got through, you know. Um, so, no, I didn't feel liberated. I'd like to have thought that I did. I think, you know, one of the upsides is, is that you don't have to look after elderly parents, you know, and I see friends of mine now and you're like, whoa, I don't have to do that, you know. But then there must be also a sense of a lack of uh, a safety net, you know? Well, I think that is what, looking back on my life, that, that, that fear that, that drove me, you know, and people say, well, how come you got, you know, you, you did well in work? It was fear. And because there was nothing, there was no safety net, there was nothing there. But safety, I think, is the most important thing we can give to any human. And I, I talk about that in my book, not just in family, but in work. Because that fear that we all have that this could fall apart, or I'll lose my job, or I'm not just good enough, just drives us, yes, but it's an exhausting driving and we need to put safety around that. Yeah. And that did go. So I, I think I sort of... I was driving that car, it felt like, with, with very low fuel on all the time. And with no fast. lessons. With no lessons and in probably... Wrong gear. You know, yeah, wrong gear, <laughs> in the fast lane no and map. without a safety belt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so you got a place in RADA and you mm. didn't take it because you felt like you didn't want to leave your younger brother. Um, and you moved into retail. 
The thing that strikes me that's really amazing about your life in general is that you learn, I mean, you learn on the job. I mean, mm. you were trained mm. to a certain extent, but you learn everything by doing, didn't mm. you? And sometimes I think that we can be quite obsessed with qualifications in these, you know, these days, you know, you have to get brilliant GCSEs, you have to get amazing A-levels, a great degree, and actually you did learn at college, but really you learned on the job, didn't you? I was, didn't learn at college, actually, Miranda. I was terrible, and I, I te really terrible. And I look back, and I was actually grief-stricken, and I was yeah. angry. I didn't know that, but I was. And um, that this life had just ended up... I felt very lonely, and I felt very angry. And um, I, I got into RADA, because, and I also knew I couldn't emotionally deal with going to drama school and expressing myself. I didn't feel free. I didn't feel creative. I felt lonely and angry. That's all how I can describe it. And I just thought, well, what am I going to do? And we'd finished school, and I was 18, and, you know, all that support system, that infrastructure that people knew, knew was gone, your parents were gone, and I just had no idea. And I thought, well, I'm quite creative. I'll go to a local college. And I went to this local college. I looked up, what, and it was this, you did a, a the diploma, an HND in visual merchandising and store design. I thought, well, what's that? I can draw. So I, and I got in by the seat of my pants and was bad. I just was, didn't work. I was rude to this poor lecturer. And she said to me, you're going to have no future in retail. I went, good, because I don't want to go into shops. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, years later, I wrote in the book, and I wrote about her, and, and, um, and I, I felt bad, but, but, you know, and I described how I thought she made my life difficult, but I was making this poor lecturer's life terrible, you know. I just wanted to be Debbie Harry and listen to The Cure. And when we were... Quite when, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when we were meant to be in the photographic studio, I was bleaching my jeans in there, and it was just, you know, not a good look. But um, one of the things, when we finished college um, after two years, I was... I, I don't even think I passed. And I suddenly realised... You have to earn money. There's no one here. And I, those years are just sort of sauntering in. And I remember two of the students, the top students, got the management training scheme at Harrods. And I thought, I'm going to go for there. And I'm, I didn't want to work in the department store in Watford because that would have been one for the yeah. loser like me. And I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. And every day I used to see this lecturer, and she was only tiny. And she had this um, studio, and she used to have these little steps, and she'd stand on the steps and put the key to the studio above the door and go off for her lunch. And I knew in there was the phone. So um, she'd go off to lunch, and I remember finding the name out of the, the personnel man, it wasn't human resources back then, the personnel guy at Harrods who'd interviewed my friend Danielle, who'd got the job. And I rang him every day for six and a half weeks. <laughs> <coughs> and he said girl. to me, there's no job, there's no job. And then after, I remember it said that it was a Wednesday on the sixth half week, he went, someone's dropped out, come in for an interview. And I just beat him down. And I got the job. And when I turned what up... What did you wear to the job? I bet you remember. I know exactly. I wore a black pencil skirt from Miss Selfridge that my sister lent me, because I, I wouldn't wear pencil skirts, but she said, oh, you've got to look proper, Mary. And she was nursing at UCH, and I remember meeting her beforehand, and she was giving me tips on, you know, and I, 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 I used to have green hair at the front, and I had to pare that down a bit, got rid of that, went in. My brother put a nice brunette colour on it for me. And, and I, I went in. And again, you're not you, really, but I got the job. But when I started there, it was the first time I felt free since the death of my mother. I walked in and it was 
this magical place. I mean, it was, so it was, there was something like, I think, 70 people on the display teams. Can you imagine front all those front windows, all the back windows, the side windows, every store. I'd never met a gay man, but within a week I knew what gay men yeah. were. And I, it was just creative mad, it was the 80s. It was about creating these fantasies in the windows. And, and it just somehow brought my theatre together and yet it was doing it with commerce. And I felt I'd found my home. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's amazing. I think if you walk into a place and you feel like you find your home, it's then, then you yes. can always move on from there, yes. can't you? I want to talk to you a little bit about music, actually, because throughout your, your books, it was, it, the, the music is in there. Yes. And you mentioned seeing the Sex Pistols on the telly. Yeah. <laughs> and you mentioned David uh, Bowie, who's like incredibly important. Mark Bolan. And Mark Bolan. But um, you do mention also going to the Blitz Club. Yeah. Which I was quite interested in because the Blitz Club was quite hard to get in, wasn't it? Yeah, but we used to go with all the guys from Harrods. Who so you would be fine. So we were fine. So I, and what we would do is we'd go down, we were meant to be taking all this, we'd have a Because this is the era where Steve Strange would be on the door, he right? He was on the door, yeah. yeah. Okay. And um, I remember Ian R. Webb, do you remember Ian, who used to be the, the, yes, the fashion journalist, coming with actually on a crucifix? I mean, it was completely mental. <laughs> And then, <laughs> well, just turning up like that with on the Christmas. <laughs> That's so brilliant. And just when lay, did he put lay it on? In there, Hang on a minute. I need to know when did he put it on? Like, did it, he go on the I bus? I don't know. I came and in then put it on. Like, like, what point? the wall the whole night on a crucifix. <laughs> That's art, baby. That's art. And um, how did he dance? <laughs> Not very well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we used to have the studio downstairs and underneath Harrods there was a place that's called Trevor Square which is literally the same square footage as the whole of Harrods and we had the display studio where all the mannequins were and all the stuff that you were meant to put in the windows, the props and we used to just dress up from there so we were always let in so you know like we would just wander to the front of the queue like, in, in I mean like we were an installation we were the windows so brilliant <laughs> coming to life Wait, I think there's a knock. We're interrupting. No, there is. We're interrupting okay. this very special podcast because there's a knock at the door and I think it might be someone who's got something interesting to say. <laughs> oh, there it is. This is Acorn <gasps> See, Antiques. I knew it. Hello. <laughs> Welcome. Hello. Who are you? I'm very good, thank you. No, who are you? Oh, I'm <laughs> Julie Baker, Head Hello. of Enterprise and Community Finance at NatWest. Julie Baker, you've interrupted my live podcast, but you're worth it. Oh, God, that's another company's uh, ad line. <laughs> uh, tell me one thing that NatWest is doing to work like a woman. Well, thank you, Mary. We are partnering with all sorts of organisations like the British Library, and we run an events programme for women in business, women-friendly, not women-only, and they're so exciting. They give information, education, and most importantly, they open up such valuable networks and everybody has fun. So you do events where you can connect women with corporate businesses which they wouldn't have access to. And we also host them in our accelerator hubs, and Ooh. our accelerator hubs are, get additional support as well. There's 12 of those around the UK. Thank you, Julie from NatWest. To find out more, just search NatWest Rethinking Business. Back to the Shaw Theatre and me. There's a point when you realise you had to, you were going to have to leave Harrods and it was to do with a male and female promotion, wasn't it? It was to do with who was going to get a job. Yes. Um, do you want to really quickly uh, explain okay. about that? Because I think that seems like quite an important point in your career. 
Yeah, well, I, I, it was, but I don't remember doing too much about it. So we used to dress the windows and we would always... Do you remember Sobrani cigarettes? The sort of ones yeah, they were cool, things, man. They were cool. But we'd say, three in the window, two for you, one for you. And then... <laughs> <laughs> so you can't put them back after you've had them in the window. But we were smoking them across in the Arco Cafe. And we used to go across there and we'd be like talking about the world and thinking we were somewhere else other than this sort of smoky old cafe around the back of Knightsbridge. And I remember the, the, there was a promotion that was up for it, and we thought Elaine, I remember Fiona and I think, Elaine had been there the longest, and Roger got the promotion. And I didn't think too much about it. And then this Fiona, who was my power, was amazing, said, this is crazy. Every man in power, it's all men. Every single head of display and every buyer on every floor and the managing director, they're all men. And I'd never... Ever, you didn't even clock it? Not clocked it. So she said, we need to go on strike. We need to campaign against this. We'll go on strike. And I thought, no, all the women who go on strike are like green and common with hairy legs. I'm not one of them. I'm not doing that. I was like, no. She goes, no, 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 we should do something. We went down to the studio and we wrote, this is just protest signs and walked around Harrods and were told to get in after sort of a half an hour. <laughs> and it was pathetic. But I do remember realising this is just unfair because she really is good, this girl. Yeah. And she should have got it and she didn't. And it was the first time I, I started to notice that the power was with the male. And this was in a luxury fashion industry and the power was there. And it just clocked, but there was nothing I could do about it because I had to survive and, and go on with my work. And you did go on <clears throat> with your work. If you think about the, the, the time that you spent, so after that, you went through loads of things. And I'm not even going to think about the telly, but I'm thinking about you actually as a working woman. Can you think of instances, and I just want a couple of instances really, where you felt that you had to kind of step up, so be more alpha. I'd like an instance of that. And then an instance where you feel, felt like that didn't work, where you could feel yourself being put down because you're a woman. Because I think there's quite often in a working woman's life a point where you think, oh, actually, now I have to behave slightly bit, a bit more like a bloke in order for, for this to work. Well, I think for me, I suddenly realised when I first went to Harvey Nichols, and I'm trying to put it into some context, is that all my working career and why I think I was lucky enough to be successful was it, it was an instinctive thing for me to do. Mm. And I used my instinct and I was connected to myself really creatively. I enjoyed it. I loved it. I loved Harrods. I loved Topshop. And then I moved to Harvey Nichols because I loved my work and was creating stuff that people hadn't done in windows before i wasn't selling stuff i was creating installation and i loved it but it was all the theatrical sides and it happened to be the right time and when i went to harvey nichols i used that instinct and don't forget then harvey nichols was a loss making department store you know if you look at the retail landscape there it was a sort of fusty old store where ladies of knightsbridge used to go in and have a schooner of sherry and fall asleep on the bonnet seatings <laughs> Upstairs. And <laughs> like it was a library. In the, in the, and then pop and have a little bit of Chanel on the way out they might buy. And mm. down the road was Harrods, it was this big glossy, you know, global business. Selfridges was the wrong end of Oxford Street. Nobody went for luxury there. And that was yeah. just not a glamorous store. And Liberties was sort of like lovely Hampstead ladies who went and bought bits of fabric. So, I mean, this is very distilling it. I'm being deeply unfair here. But roughly... <laughs> we like it. But not completely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And so when I went into Harvey Nichols, it was just being bought out by this um, Chinese entrepreneur. This is a bit of a long answer, but it's, an, it's an, quite an important one. 
um, she says. Um, but they had just been brought up by this Chinese entrepreneur and he said, I'm giving you a year to turn it around because we knew that the sale of this business, if he didn't keep the management team, the Burton Group would pay the redundancy who'd sold the business. Do you get that? So we had a year to make this business profitable. And this was just at the time when all the big luxury brands, it was about the labels, yeah. And I remember Gucci had just redefined themselves. You had Versace that was bling around. Mutual Prada had really come onto the fore. This was 1990. And you had all the luxury houses of Paris were there in, for all the French designers, Saint Laurent, and all the Vuitton was really coming fast into these big, big, really wanting, everybody was wanting to buy into these brands. So they were, they used to be the brands that were just for the very wealthy and they were starting to be really the, the, the accessories, they were growing the fragrances. And the only way to get people to your store was to have these brands. Yeah. And I, we couldn't get them because we didn't have the buy and we weren't a sexy business. So I instinctively just thought, well, what, what can we do? And I realised that the real talent, the great designers were coming out of London. But we were not known for London designers at all. So, you know, you had people like historically, of course, uh, Galliano, McQueen Latterly, but they were just being taken and put into these big global brands and yeah. we couldn't get them. And so I decided to put on new young generation shows for these young designers straight out of college and do deals with them where I would give them free space on the shop floor and kind of incubate them. And I started to then do that globally, went to Milan, met with Dolce & Gabbana, who had no money. I wish I'd said, oh, maybe we could do a little deal yeah. here. Um, <laughs> maybe a percentage down the yeah. line. Um, so Dolce & Gabbana, I remember the, some, the beauty bias of this, this great brand called Mac. Do you want to go and see it? And I went out to Canada and met these mad guys, this beauty brand, and said, who's the face of Mac? And they said, him. And it was RuPaul, a big drag queen. Amazing. I thought, perfect. You knew it you? was the right one. Yes. Too right. Put him in the windows and start, and, and we just literally got the front page of the Evening Standard with this big drag queen, you know, seven foot in a pair of wedges, having his makeup done. And realising that actually that started to then give us our identity. So all this mix of instinctive stuff made it work. Then, as it got successful, in came the financial guys, in came the data, in came the analysis. You had to go in with every idea you had and you had to sell it in and strategically give the reasons what the, the profit was going to be on this idea. So all the risk went, all that natural kind of, what I can only describe as sort of being keyed into the cultural zeitgeist, you know, from yeah. those days at house, from the music industry, from the... No, you had to play this game and that's when I had to change and that's when I found myself absolutely having to network, go round to, to all the directors before the board meeting and say, I've got this idea and you do and you'd have to say, can you back me up on it? And you'd go into those boardrooms and realise that actually it's all about individuals trying to, because the whole culture... And if you're in a boardroom like that, um, uh, how many women would be in that boardroom on, normally? Well, there would be, I'll tell you, so the, the, the managing director male, the sales director male, the finance director male, uh, the uh, buying director was a woman, and human head of personnel... Human resources, always a woman, yeah. Um, and it's true. So, no, so they, they know how to make a nice coffee. Yeah. 
Um, it's always, well, as someone wrote to me, she said, you know what, I'm a board director and to this day I go into the meetings and the, sort of the tray with the coffee gets put in front of me because they naturally yeah. think I'm going to pour. And she said, I want to pour it on their bloody heads. And you yeah. kind of get this, all these subtle things that happen. So there were three of us that were women and the rest were men, but the power was there with the men um, and those were the decision makers. So we, the buyers, well, of course, these were the women who were dressing these women, and I was doing yeah. the creative stuff, but the power was in the numbers. And did you find, what were your techniques to deal with that? It sounds like you had a technique which was to talk to people before they came in, but did you find that you had kind of male techniques in the boardroom? or? Well, I think you, it's an alpha thing. It's a, there's, there's a codes of how you behave in those boardrooms. So you don't speak your mind you have to think about how you're putting that message across. And you have to make sure that that message sounds rational. You can't say, I'm feeling this. Oh, what's that? <laughs> feeling that? What does that mean? You know, what's, what were the sales last week? What happened to that new designer that you brought in? It didn't bring any money. So you've got to then be as tough and say, yeah, let's get rid of it. Because you know if you're sitting there going, please give it time. I've got this feeling it's going to work. You're not going to survive it there. So you do get rid of it. Yeah, so you have to be, I mean, actually, it's a, quite a financially tough environment. Look, look at, the, look at the last years that we've seen in retail. It's all about systems, processes, especially the fast fashion industry. Yeah. Look at the likes of Philip Green's business. Look at that. That was not about how do we create brand and empathy and connect and dress young women from 60 to 25 and make their lives better. That was... How fast can we get this stuff onto the shop floor? How quick's the turnaround? How cheaply can we get this made offshore? And that's a spiral, spiral down. And none of that is built around what I can only describe as the right feeling and knowing that this is right. One of the greatest, one of my great, the greatest women I love is a woman called uh, Lee Edelcourt, and she is a trend forecaster, which every big designer and every design house in the world go to. And all she talks about is instinct. And she talks about instinct being the most powerful thing on how she advises. And she says, instinct comes from me, not just from me, but me connecting to the greater power and energy. And when I do that, that's how I know what, the, what is going to be the futures. And I can see this through business. They all buy into that then, but they do not bring that into the boardrooms. It's processes and you have to play that game. Otherwise, you're not going to survive. Right. Okay. So I feel like this brings us to your book because <laughs> yeah. obviously this needs, it needs to change. So I suppose what I want to know is there was a point when you realised things had to change for you. And I'm aware I'm kind of fast forwarding right through your career, but it's because I want to talk about this book. So you and I would I'll do a quick resume of that point and you can tell me if I'm wrong. So there's, you did a report into the state of the British High Street, and it was 2011. And you did a really great report, but then you had to do more than you, perhaps you wanted to, and you found it quite uh, difficult, and people didn't take it on properly. And then also you had another child. Mm. And I th it seems to me that something that can be considered as a kind of failure plus a child 
means that you just reassess everything. Is that mm. fair? Yes, that's very fair. Okay. <clears throat> so I did the British High Street Report and I went into politics. And if you think a boardroom's banned, you get in there. Oh, I've interviewed politicians, man. They're it's, boring. It, it's an, it is, isn't it? So oh, you, God. No, there, there is not a truth. And there is not such thing as this is a truth. So my whole basis on the High Street Report was... And I still believe it to this day. And we, we, I have seen countries that have done this. Of course, it's always the Northern European countries. But my whole thing was that the high street is not going to succeed in the way it has historically. This is no longer about retail because the whole things have changed dynamically. Everyone says it's the internet, but there's lots of reasons why it's changed. Um, we're buying less stuff and it's the, all the stuff that drained the malls and the supermarkets building out of town, the fact that councils are strapped for cash, the fact that government is still putting huge rates on to, to, to high streets. So I said that what will be the role of high streets in the future will be about social connection and they're important to us. And if you invest in, in, in social, if you absolute social capital, the economic capital follows. Now that is an absolute given. If you create places where people want to be and connect, that can be from a post office to a library to a working space. It doesn't have to be selling frocks or stuff. Hairdressers. Hairdressers, creches, anything, yoga studios. If you do that, those third spaces, what happens is you build around it. That's If you even go back to the Greek agora, that is how it started. They used to say to me, have you talked to Sir Philip Green? But did you, Mary? I just want to know, and if you did, what did you say? <laughs> I didn't. I couldn't do it to myself. Um. <laughs> oh, there's one thing I wanted to ask you. In the book, you said you were just about to do something, and the very top guy in business said, what's it like, how do two women make love? Was that him? No. Sorry, that wasn't No, no, no. So basically, <laughs> what happens then is, so you go into politics, and then... Nobody wants to make the change because all the money is coming from these big players and they all get knighted and that's where the power is and they connect. And I'd go into Downing Street and I literally would see the chairman of, of Tesco's coming out and he'd have met with them and he'd sort of nod at me like, nice young girl. And you can't break it. You cannot break it. You cannot break it. And then I started to get annoyed with them. And I, the community secretary was Eric Pickles, let me tell you, please. That is the man I used to have to go in and say, all right now, love. And I, I went down to Margate, we talked about this, and I was trying to work with Margate to rekindle, re-energise Margate. And they, Tesco's decided to open up an 80,000 square feet supermarket just on the edge of town. And I've done the high street report and they've all gone, yes, this is great. We're gonna, we're gonna stop all this happening. We know we've got to go back to the brown sites. I wrote to him and said, please, will you stop this? And he let it happen. Now, this is a government that's meant to be backing my report. Yeah. Um, and so I, I said in the press, oh, they're just a, you know, a bunch of idiots. So you must ended have, up so a that horrible... is bad, and it must have felt really terrible, right? Yes. So it's a yes. really horrible situation for you yes. to be in. Because actually, you know you're right, but nobody's backing you, which is... It is right, and I, to this day it's right, and I've seen it work, and it's, but nobody's backing me. And then so the then, Daily Mail write but, lovely things. Yes. So you're in that situation, you're perceived, your, your project, which could have worked, has not been yeah. backed, which yeah. is unusual for you. Yeah. And you have a child as well. Yes. And something shifts. Do you want to talk about that? Something shifts and it, it, that you, you change your attitude and you take quite a long time about thinking about things, don't you? Yeah, it took me, I realised um, that I, 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 well, one of them was opening up the Daily Mail and a headline saying Mary Queen of Flops and a double page spread, a complete annihilation, mm. complete annihilation. And then, of course, the next newspapers pick it up and then the newspapers that you also like and you go, 
mates, why are you writing this? It just, it rolls, you know this. And I remember, I, how am I going to deal with this? And at the time, I remembered I was filming this awful show with Gordon Ramsay um, called The Hotel. I can't remember what it was like. And, and Mel had just given birth to Horatio. We, we would have to do this piece. It was live. It was live. I, we, we had to run a hotel. He and guests had to come in and then they'd vote for who ran the hotel the best way. So I was running the front of house and he was doing the food. And meanwhile, Mel at home, every time I'd come home, she'd go, why are you doing that show? I don't know. I, can't, I, I don't know. <laughs> I can't get out of it now. I can't get out of it. But I knew there was this sort of clash of toxic. And either I had to play that game, continue with this, even how my, my persona was being shown through TV as well. You know, come on, you've got to fight this man. I was suddenly like, this is not me. And I took time off, and it was, I remember it so vividly, Horatio had just come into the world on the Monday, and on the Saturday, Milo, my elder son, went out into the world to university, and I cried every day. I just cried and cried. I'm crying now. And, um, and I remember going up to Milo's room and clearing up and getting his little cricket bat and thinking, well, that, that'll be for Horatio. And I just saw this young man who was going out into the world and this young one had come in and I was like thinking, and Milo was a bright lad, he was going off to do economics and he was like, well, I'll probably go into finance. And I was like, no. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, slow motion, we, oh, stop. Anything and, but that. <laughs> anything but, but I kind of knew he was on that trajectory and I saw this other young baby coming and thinking, what is this world we're in? And I just had this sense of deep unease. And I took some time out and I started, you know, books come to you. And I, I read Eckhart Tolle's, um, not The Power of Now, I read A New Earth. And I realised that I'd got the world wrong. I'd got it wrong. The way I'd been living, the way I'd been fighting it, the way I'd taken on the codes of this world that I thought got me on and made me successful. The control of it. Um, and so I started to just read other philosophers and, re and realised that the words were just beautiful and I just kept on writing down, kept on writing down. And then I thought, how can I apply this to my life? I mean, this is very short, but this mm. took over a year. And I started to write down things that made my soul sing and things I really didn't like doing. And then I wrote things that I was responsible for, so my children, you know, my business. And I started to build this picture up. And I thought... Well, I can change my world of work. I can change this now. And I can survive. And I started to look at the numbers and think, I can survive if I change this. And if it fails, I will still just get up because I know I've got belief in who I am as a human rather than this person with this ego that's been created through the way I've worked that has been shaped by all those years of the retail business and the world of business. And so I went into my work and met with my MD, who's a woman who's an extraordinary woman. Um, and I said to her, do you want to have a child? And I knew that you don't do that in human resources, Miranda. No. Number one, don't ask anybody their age or because there's no <laughs> trust. So you have to put all these links. And she said, I do. And I said, well, I want, you know, I want to do this business this way, built on stuff that I think is really important to me, values that I have as a woman. I've been getting it really wrong. I've been an aggressive pain in the arse. Um, I mean, I was kind, but I was an aggressive pain yeah. in the arse too. And can we change this? And we worked out how she could have children and how we could support that. What would, what would really good help look like? How could you be an MD 
and have children because my years were crap doing that when I first gave birth. So how could we do that? And we started writing down things that we believed we could do in our small way, like yes, her mother could come in, we could have the babies in here. If she couldn't get support at home, if her nanny wasn't well, that we would pay for that. And these were things that, not, that aren't a great cost. No, but they're a different, they, they are a different way of working. And one of the things that you did, we can talk about all the different things that you said, but, and I will pick a few out, but one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about was you brilliantly said you didn't want to do one-on-one -on -one annual appraisals. So normally, obviously, in a firm, what happens is that, you know, you, you have your yearly kind of, you've done very well, you've done really badly, you might get a pay rise, you might not. And you decided to go, do away with this. Mm. Tell us what you did, because I think that's quite important. And then also, I want to know how it worked for you, because some of the things that you had to do, you found quite hard, didn't you? Yeah, well, what we did was we changed it to, instead of these sort of appraisals, often you've had bosses that, that can control where you're going to be. And I've had bosses that haven't liked me, and you know that. Mm. So you might not get on if it's just one person. So how about we actually work collaboratively? So when you work in a business, you, you work with many people. So to have the boss being the one who judges whether you get a pay rise or not, it's just crazy or whether you get promoted. So we have these what we call 360 degrees where everybody who works with you can write what they think. You don't know who it is, but they'll write what they think. And it's really interesting from the most junior to the most senior. And you read those things and you and where you might have a, a vision of someone, then you read that and you just think, God, those people are loved, they've delivered this that you might not have aware of. And so it creates a really lovely dialogue. But equally, I, they do it for me. And, um, and, <laughs> and so I have to keep myself in check. So, you know, someone wrote, you know, Mary, sometimes Mary can be really short with the juniors and she's not very good with quiet people. And she's like... <laughs> And it's true. <laughs> and I like the ones that are like, all right, you know. And I, and I had to really reassess and think, oh, I, I didn't sleep that night that wrote that. And I, because I thought someone think, that thought that I've just not been kind in that way. Yeah. And I can be, I can be quick and I could be, you know, fast. I might say something too fast. And I had to rethink because the energy that I bring into the agency, you know, you're aware there might be very quiet people and they like, they, that pushes them back. So how do you bring them in so that they feel comfortable, they can talk to you? and have a voice, so everybody has a voice. So even today I went into the agency, I was working and I said to my creative director, Zara, and Siobhan, one of our strategists, you know, Siobhan's in her 20s, and Zara might be 30, I don't know, and you know, I'm in my 50s, and, and it was just a really beautiful collaborative discussion. This isn't me as the senior person with power signing this off, this is us together creating the best solutions and doing the best work possible. So there's many things that we did, but it was just breaking down the alpha culture, breaking out fear, but more importantly, creating a space where people felt safe, feeling safe to say, I'm finding this difficult, feeling safe to say, I'm overwhelmed, or I, I'm, I'm actually feeling a bit depressed, or I can't do this, or I need support. The minute you do that, people feel connected and they open up and they channel their energy and create 20 times better work. There are 15 values that you uh, list in here. I'm not going to um, mm. pick them all out because, because of time. Know. But um, you've talked a little bit about uh, collaboration. Mm. There's one that's, um, that you call wisdom over knowledge. Mm. Do you want to unpick that a little bit? Mm. Well, it, again, it's about hierarchical structures. That we, The hierarchical structure is often put with power. So the person at the top has the power. We believe it should be about 
the wisdom that you have learned on your journeys and how you can share that. And that is vitally important. So I, my MD is much wiser in that role than I am. I, I'm not, I could no way be the chief executive of that business. That is not me at my best. And I had to park that and, and be wise. And by the chief that. executive, you mean somebody who's in control of the money and all that? Well, she runs the business. I have a, a hippie finance director. Does that know that in my team here? <laughs> He's a hippie, isn't he? Is it? Oh, come on, where are my Porter's crew? Yeah? There they are. <laughs> he's a total hippie, isn't he, Mark? I mean, like, he's, an, he's the FD who sort of like, you know, tells me what the latest kind of wonderful esoteric book or piece of music is, you know, and he just happens to do the numbers as yeah. well, you know? I, I trust them, but we've built this mutual trust and so much in business isn't about trust, so you control. Yeah. But the minute you let go and you say, I trust, like you do with the family, and you know that actually kindness is at the centre and what's best for everybody. It doesn't mean you're a soft touch. I'm not a soft touch. Yeah. Uh, and we can fire with kindness. We've done that too. But you put that at the centre of it and trust is vital. This is one thing that I, 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 I quite often ask people. Do you ever get tired of pointing out sexism and how things can change? Because it can feel like a constant responsibility. Do you know what I mean? Like I get tired of what did you say? Pointing out sexism, just saying, like, you've got a lot of amazing stats in here, which you do have. But I find that constantly saying, did you know there's a massive gender gap when it comes to pay? Did you know that, you know, women at, yeah. uh, at 30, despite the fact that they're the best qualified and everything, start falling down in terms of pay and in terms of how they're treated? And when you're in a meeting, you're much less likely to be able to speak up unless there's another woman in the room. I mean, it's just on and on. And actually, after a while, you get a bit bored of saying it. Ah, and that is absolutely true. And now I don't, I don't actually say that, I just show. This is the way we work, this is the future. You're all a bunch of sodding dinosaurs still working like mm. that. And get over it because this is the future. And we are seeing transparency. We are at a time where that toxicity that came out of the Me Too, the gender pay gap and all that crap, and the people like the Trumps of the world, all that toxic clash is actually being met by beauty that's coming in. And that beauty is coming from the next generation. It's not my generation. That beauty is coming from millennials and Generation Z who are coming in and thinking about their planet, thinking about sustainability, want transparency. And the new players that are coming onto the, onto the business world are starting to make this happen. When you look at the culture documents of what Netflix wrote, it's superb piece of work. It's one of the most successful businesses. They're starting to do this. And all the dinosaurs of the control and the, the, the short-term goals, those days are over. There'll still be ones that are doing it, but there's a new future. So what I do is I'm not going to bang my drum on that. I'm just going to show. I'm yeah. just going to show and create change because that's the only way we can make change happen is that we make change and we create it. And when I'm ever signing my books and I see anybody who's under 40 come to me, I say, it's over to you now, guys. Mm. It's over. We've, we've got the door open. It's been opened by the hideousness. We now need to kick it bloody wide open. All right. Thank you very much to the fantastic Mary Potts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much for listening. If this was the first time that you've ever listened to the Work Like a Woman podcast, we've got a few more for you to listen to with some brilliant guests. So please be sure to check us out and subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Spotify, we're on Google Podcasts anywhere you get your podcasts just look us up look subscribe us up. subscribe there's going to be great ones to come